Jeffrey Ritzman. And Jeremy Vaney. Ah, that's me. We had such a deep, great chat last week that I actually thought maybe this week uh, we should continue it, because there's a whole subset of topics that that it brought to the fore in my mind, but then I realized we have a guest. <laughs> You're hysterical. You know that? Yes. Yeah. I could go on, but no. I won't. Please don't. Yeah, no. No. Um, <laughs> however, I do want to say that in, in listening uh, to last week's show, uh, as I was editing, I realized that at some point you asked me why I'm still here and if I think I have all of this stuff figured out or whatever. And I thought that you were asking, why am I still here since I had the big God experience? Uh, but I, actually, I think you were, upon listening to it, asking me, if I think I have these beings figured out, why I'm still here putzing around. That's correct. Uh, so I'm sorry I misinterpreted you, but uh, the answer to that is no, I don't. <laughs> oh, okay. And that's why I'm still here. <laughs> I now understand that. Yes, I have suspicions based on experience, but... And then, well, there, then there's my I other know. question, which is, um, why are you here? Right, and that one I answered. Which is, you know... Because uh, I'm an idiot. Because <laughs> I thought I'd come back and write a book that that uh, would matter, and, uh, and that turned out to be uh, what's the word for that wrong? Everything is as it should be. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> um. So, what do you have? Anything to add, or uh, you good? <laughs> Well, what a se- master of the segue, ladies and gentlemen. Master of the segue. No, Jeremy, I'm fine. Shall we continue with the guest tonight? Uh, yes. Actually, you know what? Before that, can I do a quick plug? Well, you're asking me. This whole show is a mess. No, this show is fantastic. You'll see. Good. Plug away, butt plug. Go ahead. Uh, well, either by, probably by the time you hear this or a little bit later if I'm lazy, and I think we all know how that's going to go. Uh, I will have a Kickstarter project up with one Philippe Mora, uh, which has nothing to do with Paratopia. It's purely a comedy project. But when we get that up and going, I'm sure Jeff will kindly place a link on the website. Uh, and you can go in and kick, kickstart a mock documentary on Bingo, a comedy narrative film. Did you say Bingo? <laughs> yes. I'm sorry, how's that? <laughs> so anyway, that's my plug. Uh, at some point, either today or this weekend, I'll have a what I'm hoping is a funny little video for you to watch at Kickstarter and some options for you to uh, to donate kindly to our little fund. We want to raise 60 grand so that we can make this film. Actually, I want to raise 60 grand so that when I need more than 60 grand, Philippe will be roped into having to give me that extra money. 
And you say it's about bingo. <laughs> well, okay, it's actually about a, a guy, it's about a douchebag who does a film as a means of self-discovery and uh, ends up filming people at a local bingo hall, basically townies that he wouldn't want to be a day in his life. And he ends up following around an ex-stripper whose entire goal is to become queen of bingo. And by the end of the film, he does discover himself. And I, I won't spoil that ending for you. Hmm. What do you do for a living? <laughs> that's that's it. That's all I got. It's this or bust. <laughs> what do you do for a living? What? I, uh, I pet birds and I uh, gerbil whisperer. I've had a lot of problems with rodents. Mm. <laughs> mm. All right. Moving on to our guest, Jeremy. And who would that be for tonight? That would be one Donald Tyson. None other than of www.donaldtyson.com. That, that's where you can find all of his work. Uh, but tonight we're going to be talking about his book, The Dream World of H.P. Lovecraft, His Life, His Demons, His Universe. That's right, hmm. folks. We're doing an episode on H.P. Lovecraft. Well, and get this, as we were uh, interviewing this gentleman, I looked up on Wikipedia something about H.P. Lovecraft, and his name came up. He is a very, very noted occultist. So uh, strap in, because this will be a, a really good one. Or strap on, in Jeremy's case. But either way you cut it, this is a good interview. Really? I'm leaving that in? <laughs> <laughs> By the way, you mean Donald Tyson is the good occultist, not H.P. Lovecraft, just just for clarity's sake. Th that's correct, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but uh, then so we talk about him for a bit, and then we get into um, magic and, mm -hmm. and all of that fun stuff. Um, and actually, I think it's really good. I think it's a really interesting, twisty, windy interview. Yeah, yeah. Well, later on in the interview, we actually get into I don't know, sort of the mechanics a little bit, which is the part we've always been interested in here on the show is kind of the whys of why it works and. Uh, and if it does. And so uh, those questions come up at the end. That's right, Jeff. That's right. Um, I kind of feel like I should almost publicly apologize to Donald because we had so many mishaps with the, with the technology that it felt unprofessional for me. Uh, you know, it was like we were recording and it just kept going out like over yeah. and over again. Um, so I don't know if that was us or if that was the phenomenon. Well, I, I'm tending to believe that it may have been a little mishap with the Skype as there was an update that very night when we uh, when we signed on to do the show. And I'm not sure if you got the update, but I did not. No. And so that may have been the problem. Tonight I am fully updated with Skype. And so it, it always seems to be that when we uh, go to record an interview, that's when they decide to shove down an update. So, so the phenomenon in question is, in fact, Skype. Skype, that's right. Skype is a phenomenon, I might add. And thanks to the good people at Skype for the audio clarity that you're hearing now. That's right. Not the other night when we were recording so much, but right now. Thank you, guys. Right. And, and gals. Uh, in any event, that is that. This is this. Let us move on. Here is Donald Tyson. If you record audio for any purpose, chances are you want it to be heard. You want to attract the largest audience possible who can hear your message. That's where we come in. We're CyberEars.com, a revolutionary Internet service that will host your audio files and help you promote and track its popularity. 
Considering hosting a podcast to the world, we have all the automated tools to make the process as simple and easy as it can be. No technical mumbo-jumbo to work out. CyberEars.com does all the work for you. You record it, we take care of the rest. So don't delay. Go to CyberEars.com today and register for a free trial account. Upload your audio files and get heard. With CyberEars.com, it's your audio on your terms. Peritopia, without further ado, here is author and occult and magic expert Donald Tyson. Donald, thank you so much for joining us to talk about H.P. Lovecraft. It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, Now... I've read Lovecraft's stories, or you know, a handful of them, so I may even have one up on Jeff in terms of knowing anything about him. <laughs> uh, so this is going to be special for us, because rarely do we actually do a show where we don't know a heck of a lot about the subject, and yet, magically, I still have a bunch of questions about him. So you describe in the book that there are two Lovecrafts. There's the awake, rational Lovecraft, who didn't believe in mysticism, didn't believe in religion. Uh, and then there was the fertile imagination of his dreamscape, right? Um, well, are you talking about literally two separate people uh, inside of him, or is it just like everyone else who dreams a lot, and so um, you've got the awake person and the asleep person? Is there a difference in Lovecraft? It's a pretty strong division in Lovecraft, because uh, outwardly, consciously, he was a materialist, and he had no patience with anyone who had any belief in either uh, religion or uh, the supernatural. And yet, inwardly, uh, his entire life was uh, bound up with his dreams. I mean, his dreams were the most important aspect of his life uh, since he was a small child, and and that that was true until the day of his death. But I I should maybe mention... uh, that uh, Lovecraft's a writer, and he lived from uh, 1890 to uh, 1937, and he published uh, short stories, uh, which he called Weird Tales. He uh, he was an aficionado of uh, what he called uh, cosmic, uh, cosmic fear. By that, he meant a kind of a melding of science fiction and horror. He essentially wrote science fiction stories, but they... Uh, they were uh, had a horror element uh, running through them. Uh, although he did write pure horror stories as well, but uh, uh, he's uh, he really distinguished himself by writing a combination of science fiction and horror. And uh, but he was a rationalist his entire life. Uh, when he was younger, he wanted to be an astronomer. And when he got into high school, he found that he just couldn't handle algebra. And he realized that uh, in order to be a professional astronomer, he was going to get very heavily into mathematics, and he just wasn't equipped to uh, deal with mathematics. So he had to give up uh, his dream of being an astronomer. But he never gave up his materialistic uh, view of the world. He completely rejected anything that had to do with uh, the unseen or uh, with religion or with the spirit or the soul. He he simply... um, consciously rejected it but at the same time if you read his stories they're completely obsessed with the mysterious and the unseen the hidden i think it's very telling that when uh, he got a telescope when he was a young boy he would look at uh, two things through his telescope he'd look at the moon and he'd look at venus now when he was looking at the moon his main concern was uh, 
curiosity about what was on the far side of the moon. Uh, as most people know, the moon presents only one face to the Earth, and until uh, rockets were able to uh, circle the moon, nobody had any idea what was on the other side of the moon. So Lovecraft, when he was looking at the face of the moon that we could see, he was preoccupied in his mind imagining what was on the far side of the moon. And uh, Venus is a curious planet. It's completely uh, covered in cloud. And when Lovecraft was observing Venus through his telescope, what was in his mind was a uh, question of what was underneath those clouds in Venus. So even though he was... Um, practicing amateur astronomy when he was a boy. He was really a, a romantic, you know. His, his mind was uh, caught up in the uh, the questions of what lay beyond, what was uh, beyond the edge of the, the knowable. Could part of the discrepancy also be that, that because he had such a fertile imagination and fertile dream life that he saw that those rules didn't apply to the wake state? And so that could that have even made him more of a rationalist and more sort of anti um, the type of person who would say, well, we can we can use these outlandish religious and sort of uh, mystical practices in the real world. Do you think just just the the sort of nature of his imagination proved to him because those rules didn't apply in his everyday life that that it was all nonsense? Do you think that's possible? Uh, well. His pose, his outward pose to other people um, in his correspondence and in his uh, daily interaction was that uh, anything supernatural or mystical was nonsense. I mean, he rejected it as absurd. But that wasn't really the problem that he had with it. His problem was that he was terrified of uh, of the supernatural. He was terrified of his dreams. Uh, when he was a young boy or five or six years old, he started having horrible nightmares. They corresponded approximately with the death of his grandmother, which was a great shock to him. It was the first significant loss that he'd faced in his life. And he was, a, he was an only child, and he, he had been very pampered. He'd been raised in a very wealthy uh, environment, and he was the focus of uh, his, his uh, mother and his two aunts, who were unmarried at the time when he was a young boy. And uh, he, he was the apple of his grandfather's eye. And when his grandmother died, it was a big shock to him. He started to have these horrible nightmares uh, in which he was visited by these strange uh, shadow creatures. Uh, they had no mouths, and they were black all over. But he could distinguish them by their eyes, and they had barbed tails, and uh, they had bat-like wings. And they'd take him out of his bed, grab him by the stomach, and lift him up uh, through the window and into the night sky. And they'd carry him far away off over the uh, rooftops of Providence and into this strange landscape that was... Uh, nothing but uh, these spear-like mountains, which he could see miles and miles below him. And then these creatures would start tossing him back and forth through the night sky, playing with him, you know, as, as if they would play with a ball. And finally, at the end of his nightmare, he'd be dropped, and he'd be tumbling through the air toward these sharp spires of rock down below. And he knew he was going to be impaled on one of these, uh, one of these mountains, these needle-like mountains. And then he'd wake up screaming in a sweat. And he had that nightmare for years in various forms. And it so terrified him, this is uh, my own belief anyway, that he was so terrified by this nightmare and by many other similar nightmares that he had growing up that 
he was afraid to give any credence to the supernatural uh, for fear that it would uh, overpower his life. You know, he, he had to kind of shut it out in order to maintain his sanity. He was afraid it was going to cost him his uh, his mind. So how does, a man, how does a man like that, or how does a boy like that, grow into an author who, I mean, you just look at the Necronomicon, something like that, where, you know, people still question the reality of his writing, uh, or where he got this quote-unquote information from. Um, how does he become that person? Well, I think he was a bit of a genius, you know, uh, from from the time of his birth. He had a, a natural talent for writing. He, he learned to read when he was uh, about two years old, and uh, he, at a very early age he learned to write, and uh, he was composing his own creative stories when he was five and six uh, he wrote his first professional story when he was 13. He, uh, it wasn't published when he was 13, but he, he revised it, and it was eventually published. So he had a real talent for literature from um, a very early age. And uh, he, he, he resisted. He resisted the idea of writing fiction, weird fiction. Weird fiction was his natural... Uh, his natural genius. It's where he should have been. But for, for many years, he wrote... Uh, essays, uh, boring essays on social subjects, and he wrote poetry that was written in the style of the 18th century, and uh, he was fighting against his own natural uh, talent for many years, and finally uh, he realized, he had no one to tell him, but he finally realized on his own that this is what he should be, should be doing, and he started to write weird stories, and of course they started to be successful about the same time. Did he uh, did he know the impact that he was having, uh, or did that come later um, on the occult? He, uh, no, he uh, he always he, he professed to despise the occult, and uh, he had complete contempt for anyone who had any belief in the occult. But so he never he himself uh, never had any regard, and he had very little knowledge of the occult. He. Uh, much of the information that he provides in his stories was cribbed out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Uh, he had a very limited uh, knowledge. He actually asked his friends to send him uh, occult books, you know, texts, because he wanted to uh, broaden his understanding of occultism so he could work it into his stories with a little more plausibility. But uh, the thing about Lovecraft was, in spite of himself, he was connected to some kind of astral... Uh, current, you know. He uh, he had access to um, visions in his dreams, which uh, they, they terrified him, but at the same time, by writing about them, he was able to control them. So he put them in his stories in order to uh, gain control over them. And in doing so, he brought forth this uh, amazing vision he had of these astral landscapes and put them on the page. And uh, I regard them as legitimate astral visions. You know, I think he was uh, astrally projecting in his sleep, but he didn't realize it. Well, what do you make of something like uh, the Necronomicon? What do you think that was for? What do you think it was about? Well, the reason he wrote the ne- uh, wrote about the Necronomicon was uh, as a plot device for his stories. He needed a, a book that would uh, contain all of the. Uh, dread secrets that would uh, unlock the plot devices or you know the the, the uh, complexities of his story plots uh, this was the key to them, the necronomicon and it didn't exist of course but 
rather than take an existing grimoire, which he, he knew very little about the grimoires, he created his own grimoire, the Necronomicon, and he wrote a few paragraphs of it and uh, presented it as a real book. And he did it with such uh, reality and clarity that people for decades were convinced that uh, there actually was an Necronomicon. He created a false um, background for it, a false history for the book, which was fairly plausible. And uh, many people were convinced that this book actually existed in libraries, which uh, is not true. There's, there, there never was an Necronomicon in the physical world. Now, the astral world, that's a different question entirely. Uh, my own contention is that Lovecraft saw the Necronomicon on the astral level. Uh, well, that, that, that was sort of going to be uh, kind of where I go with this, which is if the Necronomicon wasn't real or if nothing about it was was legitimate, then what do you make of all of the people who say that, you know, the spells work or that it has some sort of mystical power over them? Uh, I mean, are they just all kooks or uh, is there something about the focus of intention that it, it doesn't matter even what the object of that focus is? Uh, or is it real in some way we don't understand? I think uh, I think as Rothcraft did see uh, a book. Now, in, in some of his dreams, he would be walking through this uh, old second-hand bookstore with these shelves piled with these moldy tomes, and he'd come across a book bound in black leather, a thick book bound, bound in black leather, and that was that was uh, one vision of the Necronomicon. And he actually received uh, a vision of the name Necronomicon, which which has no existence outside of Lovecraft. Lovecraft created the word Necronomicon, and uh, he applied it to this book, this black book that he saw in his dreams. And, and in the writing of the stories, he was able to supply certain uh, details uh, about the content of this book. Uh, I believe that uh, they're probably that he drew it from uh, what's called the uh, Akashic Records. You know, the um, the library of uh, all things that are that exist and that are thought and are dreamed. Uh, which uh, is accessible through the astral during astral projection uh, by some people. And I think he found this book there and uh, brought it forth in a partial form. Now, I don't know if he, uh, if his version of it is the only version of the Necronomicon or the final version of it, but it's one version of it. And it has great power. I mean, he, brought, he, he wrote about this book just as kind of a device for his stories, but it took on a life of its own, and people are determined to make this book real and to imbue it with uh, great uh, esoteric power. And they've done so over the past uh, 50 or so years. Uh, the legend of the Necronomicon just keeps growing and growing with each passing year. Do you think that there's, um, I don't know, something in the way of um, even Aleister Crowley uh, Jack Parsons, you know, Lovecraft, these guys were some sort of bridge between um, minds, <laughs> between going from sort of magical thinking minds into sci-fi um, in a way that that was real, in a way that, that uh, made a reality of this uh, fantastic, you know, imaginative realm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I Lovecraft, one of the, one of the main uh, aspects of the Necronomicon is that it, it uh, describes the, uh, the great old ones who are a set of uh, beings of immense power who are 
in some senses, they're uh, alien beings. They're, if one looks at it as a science fiction, then these are uh, alien uh, creatures from other stars. But at the same time, they're also uh, creatures from other dimensions. Lovecraft doesn't describe them as distant from the Earth just in space. He describes them as dwelling in the spaces between the stars, which is kind of an interesting description, the spaces between the stars. He, what he meant to imply was a kind of uh, higher dimensional reality for these creatures. And they're completely inhuman in their nature. Uh, unlike the gods of the Greeks or the Romans, uh, these, uh, these great old ones are, uh, are gods that have very little in common with humanity. And uh, they're described to some extent in the sections of the Necronomicon, which Lovecraft quotes in his various stories. And I think uh, they are one of the things that gives uh, his Necronomicon so much power. People can uh, perceive that uh, in these uh, great old ones, these uh, these beings of immense power, the um, fundamental archetypes, uh, very similar to the uh, the the ruling gods of um, pagan times. Uh, the god Pan, for example, of the uh, the Greek pantheon, is uh, gives the root for the word panic. And that's because when Pan approached his worshippers, they were gripped with uh, an uncontrollable terror. Just his presence, the mere presence of the god Pan, caused them to fall into this uh, terror that they they uh, they couldn't cast off, they couldn't escape it. And uh, I see that the great old ones of Lovecraft, which he describes in his Necronomicon, they have a similar power. It's a power that uh, is visceral. It's, uh, it lies at the very root of uh, the essence of things. And uh, when the great old ones come, they, I'm sure, bring the same degree of terror that the god Pan brought to the ancient uh, Greeks. What do you think he would have made of um, UFOs and alien abductions? Do you think he would have thought... Um, well, let, let's give you some choices here. A, uh, it's all nonsense. B, it's aliens. Or C, um, it's something more along the lines of what we're talking about here. Well, the thing about aliens and alien abductions is they're physical. And because they're physical, Lovecraft would have uh, said that it was completely possible that such things could exist. Uh, because he was a materialist, and uh, Aliens and alien abductions uh, are material in their nature. You know, they're beings from other stars, and they, they fly in physical ships from one place to another. They have physical bodies. So when well, you look at aliens... But that, that's only a theory, you know. There are, there are lots of theories about it. And Well, let me ask it this way. Do you think that he would have looked at the sort of myriad theories about what what constitutes an alien or an alien abduction, whether that's actually Lovecraft. something from another star system or that's some sort of facade. Do you think he would have gone with the materialist perspective that, oh yeah, that's aliens? That's the paradox of Lovecraft. Uh, he, he's an amazingly uh, paradoxical being. I mean, he would have said that the aliens, if they exist at all, they're physical. Because his, his view of life, his conscious, outward, professed view of life was completely materialistic. But at the same time, if he had described them in his stories... As he, as he did with the great old ones, which when you think of the great old ones, really they're just aliens, you know? And uh, 
when he described them as stories, he described them as beings from spaces between the stars, which is to say other higher dimensions. And he often wrote about uh, higher dimensions uh, in his stories, dimensional travel, dimensional portals. That was a common feature of uh, Lovecraft's uh, mythos stories. So consciously, he would have said that if aliens exist, they have to be physical because he rejected any kind of... um, metaphysical existence, any kind of reality to the metaphysical. But in his unconscious, his dreaming mind, I think he would have imbued uh, aliens with uh, non-physical characteristics, the ability to step between dimensions, for example. I mean, his aliens, you take his aliens are are made of, have bodies, but their bodies are so strange that when they die, they dissolve into nothingness. They just evaporate into the air. Uh, and their bodies are so strange that when you look at them, you can't make sense of them because they're so different from anything we're familiar with, uh, the mind refuses to grasp them. Or in one case, he describes one alien being that's actually invisible. And I don't believe it was actually invisible in the sense that it was invisible physically, but it was invisible because the human mind was incapable of grasping its nature and refused to see it. So that's how... That's how uh, strange uh, Lovecraft's aliens are. But at the same time, if he was confronted with uh, a story of alien abduction, he would have said, well, yeah, it's possible because it's possible that physical beings live in other star systems and that they travel to Earth in spaceships and they could have landed and they could have interacted with human beings. So that's the, that's the strange um, tension that existed in Lovecraft's life between his conscious mind and his unconscious mind, his subconscious the thing you point out in your book is uh, one of the great things about him is that he did document so much of what he thought uh, throughout his life. Was there ever a change from, I mean, do you, do you see a change in him, uh, maybe a loosening up <laughs> uh, as he gets older, or does he sort of maintain changed, that rational stance? He changed in a variety of ways. He uh, he changed uh, when he was a younger man. He was uh, very much a racist, and when he became older, he became much more tolerant uh, of other racial groups. He wasn't nearly as hostile, so he kind of mellowed when he got older in that sense. Uh, but when it came to um, materialism, he was a, he was an atheist, and he was a materialist until the day he died. And, and he did it just to cling to his own sanity. I mean, he 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 simply for Lovecraft, it wasn't a choice. It was a simple case that. If he had acknowledged the existence of the unseen and the astral realm and the spirit, he was afraid that he would just become lost in it. It would draw him in like a whirlpool, and he would never get out. Once he, once he opened himself to the occult, uh, he was afraid that he would never escape from it. And he, so it was a matter of self-preservation for Lovecraft. He had to be a materialist. I don't think he... It, it wasn't uh, a natural part of his being because everything about him was uh, romantic, you know? He was uh, he was anti-materialist in his essence, but he clung to a materialistic worldview for his own salvation. And the reason was his father had gone insane and his mother had gone insane. He was an only child, and both his parents went insane. Now, he was certain, and during his younger life, he had nervous breakdowns. He had multiple nervous breakdowns, so his mind was very unstable. He was terrified that he'd go mad. Uh, and uh, to cling to sanity, he had to reject from the world anything 
that was not uh, solid and scientific. He clung to science as uh, salvation, the way a, a drowning man would cling to a life preserver. That was Lovecraft clinging to uh, a materialistic worldview. Huh. Well, here's a question I probably know the answer to based on that. Did he have a sense of humor about any of this? Oh, he had a great sense of humor. Oh, yeah. um, well, that's surprising. Uh, so did he have a sense of humor about... Because um, I, I imagine occultists and that sort of thing sort of clung to his writings. Did he smirk at that or or well what? he was tolerant he was tolerant of the people who who had many of his friends you know they 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 told him look uh, lovecraft your stories are are so powerful uh and your dreams are so uh, are so real you must you must have accessed something that uh, is a little beyond uh, just fantasy you you've accessed some level of reality you know and and he would say well no that's that's ridiculous um even though uh, they seem real, it's, it's, he still rejected anything that wasn't material. But, but he was tolerant of people who had uh, other views, but at the same time, he was tolerant in a kind of contemptuous sort of way. He thought that they were kind of uh, childish to, to have uh, any kind of view that was not uh, materialistic. Like, re- he rejected religion at a very early age, he, when he was uh, old. 10, 12 years old, you know, he was, he was forming his atheistic philosophy at that point. And uh, he simply regarded people who believed in religion or spiritual, spirituality or any kind of occultism, they're all kind of connected in the sense that they, uh, they're part of uh, a continuum of the unseen and the unknown. Uh, he regarded them all as kind of simplistic in their thinking. I mean, he thought he was more sophisticated than they were, but, but he, was, he was a very genial person. I mean, all the people that knew Lovecraft liked him. I mean, he had a great personality, and when uh, people spent time with him uh, on a one-to-one basis or in small groups, uh, Lovecraft could be incredibly charming. Uh, did he have pressure from his peers to disavow any of this stuff, or what, what was the sort of general... Uh, sense of the occult or religion or mysticism amongst his writing peers? I think it was kind of divided. You know, some of uh, the writers with whom Lovecraft corresponded uh, were open to the occult, and others were uh, pretty much, uh, their minds were closed against it. I I think there was a division there. And what do you, when you say that that you think that he was um, astrally projecting, I guess, as opposed to just normal dreaming, how does one determine the difference? That's a good question. It's a, it, there's really no uh, way to determine it for sure. Uh, it's about the only way you can determine the, the difference is the quality of the vision. Uh, when, when you project astrally, there's a, a reality and a depth to the vision that doesn't exist in a normal dream. It has a certain uh, tangibility. It it uh, it comes in through all the senses and. Lovecraft, uh, many of his stories were actually based on his dreams. Uh, some of them were, in fact, they were verbatim descriptions of his dreams. And all he did was write down what he dreamed, and that was his story. Uh, in the story Polaris, uh, Lovecraft, it was based on a dream where Lovecraft found himself a disembodied uh, eye, a point of view that was kind of flying through the air over this, this strange uh, city between uh, these dark, sinister hills. And Lovecraft turned that into uh, one of his stories. But, but that initial dream, that flying through the air over the city, that, that's a uh, characteristic of many uh, astral projections. Many uh, 
especially uh, unconscious astral projections, spontaneous astral projections. And Lovecraft's projections were spontaneous. He didn't deliberately set out to go to astral locations in his sleep, but it happened you know, against his will. He probably would have preferred not to project astrally during his sleep because he was terrified of uh, some of the nightmares that occurred. Now, mind you, at the same time, he was also completely delighted by some of the beautiful and mystical scenes that he perceived in his dreams. I mean, he loved his dreams because they gave him visions of uh, strange worlds and strange uh, creatures that he could never hope to see in real life. But when he had the nightmares, then, of course, uh, he was terrified and and he dreaded his dreams at that time. So... you know, there was a kind of a push-pull going on there, and he couldn't control it in any case. I mean, the projections were completely spontaneous. Do you think a guy like him could have existed at another point in history, or do you think uh, he, you know, his life sort of manifested as a result of of the pulling of the tides of change? I think the period in which he grew up, which was the early part of the 19th century, it helped that... Uh, he was uh, came from a wealthy background because uh, people around him didn't really expect him to work. And so when he uh, decided that he was going to withdraw from high school, he spent uh, five years doing really nothing except lying around his house in his, uh, his bathrobe and his slippers and uh, reading books, reading magazines. And then uh, at night he'd go outside and he'd uh, he'd walk up and down the dark streets of Providence, Rhode Island, and he'd visit the graveyard. You know, he was, he loved the graveyard there, Swan Point Graveyard. And I think uh, that particular milieu, the, a Providence in the early part of the 19th century, was responsible for making Lovecraft the writer that he became when he got a little older. Uh, I don't think Lovecraft could be produced in another time or another place. But I think someone similar to Lovecraft could arise in another time and place. But they would have a different uh, view of the world because uh, they would have grown up in a a different environment. We have on uh, a guest named George Hansen often, (laughs) or at least he comes up in our own conversations often on the show. We've had him on a couple of times. Um, But he talks about the trickster uh, theory and anti-structure as a component of that. Essentially, when people are in anti-structural uh, environments or anti-structural times in their lives, essentially that's when um, paranormal stuff happens to them. Uh, do you think it's fair to say that that he led a fairly anti-structural life? It sounds like, from what you're saying, he did. Uh, well, his life was very strange. I mean, he was... Uh he was never able to get on with other people very well. When He was born into wealth, and he, he was very spoiled as a child, and uh, he projected that onto other people. He expected them to fetch and carry for him, and he expected them to do what he, he told them to do. And when his grandfather died, and he was suddenly uh, precipitated from wealth to poverty, he didn't change his way, and that caused a great deal of uh, hardship for him. I mean, people just weren't willing to put up with him. So he got beaten up uh, in school quite frequently, and he he, he was taunted, and uh, he was called Lovey. Oh, that was a nickname for him, which he hated. <laughs> and uh, he, 
he never he never had a girlfriend. He never even approached having a girlfriend. I mean, that that just didn't arise uh, because he just didn't know how to talk to he didn't know how to talk to anyone, but especially he didn't know how to interact with uh, with girls. And he, he was very strange. He, he 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 delighted in spending time with himself. He really had no interest in other human beings. Human beings for Lovecraft were furniture. They were parts of the landscape. When he looked at a, a crowded city street, he saw buildings and he saw human beings moving on the sidewalk. But for Lovecraft, the human beings on the sidewalk and the facades of the buildings were the same thing. They were part of his uh, architectural landscape. That's how he looked upon other human beings. Uh, he didn't have contempt for them. He just couldn't really relate to them on the human level. But I don't think that was responsible for his astral dreams. I think that the astral dreams were just something that was born in him. I think it was a gen genetic uh, quality in Lovecraft's uh, nature and his makeup. Hmm. I mean, it, it just sounds like from what from everything you're saying that he, that he sort of embodied that anti-structural state, and perhaps that's why uh, he consciously clung to rationality because there was no rational structure in his life. It was just sort of all over the place, and so he had to be the one uh, to be that rational structure. Do you think that's fair to say? I think Lovecraft was uh, a man that lived his entire life on a precipice. Uh, the precipice was sleep. Uh, when he was awake, his, his life was very orderly and very rational. He was the most rational of men uh, to talk to. He, he was an intelligent man, and he studied science, science all his life. He, uh, he, when he was young, he had his own chemistry laboratory set up in his house, and he used to go up to the professional uh, astronomical observatory that was run by Brown University, and uh, he used to use the uh, telescope there. You know, they used to let <laughs> they used to let little Lovecraft play with their telescope. Uh, he, he was very rational his entire life. It was only in his sleep that this rationality slipped and this other this other world took over this world of uh this world of the mysterious and the unseen this this world of uh, the occult and, and lovecraft brought that world forth from his dreams into his waking life by writing his stories the stories started out the the real um impetus for his his fiction writing his weird fiction writing was the necessity of bringing his dreams forth and setting them down on the page so that he could master them and control them and shape them. Uh, so that's a, that's a, that's that's Lovecraft, uh, a man on a precipice. He was afraid his entire life he was going to tumble off that precipice, and when he did, that would be madness. And the whirlpool would uh, draw whirlpool would draw him in, and he'd be lost forever. But he maintained his sanity by bringing his dreams forth into his waking life and setting them down so that he could structure them and, and, and control them. So do you think that he was completely sane and just fearful, or do you think that maybe he had a touch of mental illness? Because it sounds like, uh, from what you're saying, you know, just in terms of people, um, that does sound sociopathic in a way, you know, sort of lack of empathy or something along those he lines. He never lost his mind, or he, he never lost his mind. No, he, but he did have nervous breakdowns. Now, I guess it would depend on how you look upon nervous breakdowns, whether you look upon them as uh, mental illness or not. Uh, I suppose they are a form of mental illness, but uh, Lovecraft never lost his rationality. I mean, he was always able to think and function. 
in a practical way in his life, uh, you know, practical for Lovecraft. He was never a very practical man. He couldn't earn a living, but but he could he could function on his own level. Um, he never lost his sanity in that respect, and he really never came close to losing his sanity. He was afraid his entire life he was going to go insane, but he never came close to losing his uh, his sanity. And before I hand it over to Jeff, uh, I should, I guess, ask the question I should have asked at the beginning, which is, uh, why did he go by HP? What, what does that stand for? Uh, HP stands for uh, Howard Philip Lovecraft. So Lovecraft was really his last name, which I find fascinating, because... Yeah, the Philip is the name of his, uh, his mother's family. His grandfather was uh, named, uh, was named Philip. And... Uh, he uh, he always uh, had very uh, tender feelings for his mother's family. He he, he thought uh, the world of the uh, his mother's side of the family, his father's side of the family, he respected because they were Anglo-Saxon, you know, and he had a very uh, strong uh, feeling for his Anglo-Saxon roots. But uh, the Phillips uh, side of the family, that was the uh, the side that had been successful. Uh, Whipple Van Buren Phillips, his grandfather, really uh, built himself up from very little to uh, to uh, to being a very prosperous uh, industrialist. Uh, well, uh, kind of a robber baron type is what he was, and uh, you know until he lost his money, he 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 was uh, he was one of those men that uh, made a fortune and then lost that fortune before he died. But anyway, uh, Lovecraft. So the P in H.P. Uh, Lovecraft is Phillips, and that's uh, that's his mother's family. Well, somebody who's not uh, familiar with uh, Lovecraft's work in any meaningful way whatsoever, my questions are probably going to be rudimentary. But um, Jeremy had asked you how he was perceived by his peers. Uh, I'm curious how he was kind of received by the public. Was he feared? Was he considered a very mysterious guy? I mean, what what kind of um, what kind of outlook did the public at large have on him? Uh, he he wasn't widely known during his own lifetime. He he was known to a very uh, select group of uh, amateur writers who who belonged to uh, two writing associations, uh, the United Amateurs uh, and the uh, well, I think it was called the National Amateurs, and. Uh, these were groups that were collection of uh, people who wanted to write, but uh, weren't really too concerned about writing professionally. And they published their own small journals, their small magazines, and they circulated them through the mail from one writer to another. And uh, they kind of gained experience in this way, and they got their stories and their essays and their poetry critiqued. And Lovecraft was very well known among that circle because he was one of the heads of the. Uh, United Amateur uh, Press Association. He uh, he was uh, invited to join it in 1914, and for the rest of his life, he contributed a huge amount of material to it, and he helped uh, a, a great number of other writers to uh, uh, master their uh, their craft. And, and the other people uh, who knew Lovecraft well were the readers of Weird Tales magazine, which was a popular pulp fiction magazine of the day. Uh, it was very popular during the 1920s and 30s, and uh, Lovecraft was one of the main contributors to Weird Tales, and his stories were very well received by readers. They always looked forward to a, a new Lovecraft story. He was looked upon as like uh, the grand old man of Weird Tales, uh, in a sense. He was uh, 
the, the patriarch. Uh, the other writers uh, sort of looked up to him and looked to him for guidance when it came to uh, fiction writing. But the general public uh, didn't even know that Lovecraft existed. He, he was not a widely known uh, writer, and he was certainly not widely respected because most uh, literary critics would have dismissed his writings out of hand as uh, genre fiction and uh, really not worth their time to even criticize. Hmm. Do you think that his... Um decided materialistic view of things and his kind of his disdain for people who believed in any sort of esoterica at all. Uh, do you think that might have been caused by by fear of ridicule um, uh, during that point in time? I mean, were he to come forth and say, I do believe there's something to this. I do believe that there is a deeper reality that is going on here that uh, that I'm tapping into and I believe that that could be what's going on or, or did he even not did he not even think that I mean is that was that the way his mind sort of worked that possibly he believed there was more going on here than a writer telling a story and uh, and kind of kept that from public view by this staunch materialistic view it would be tempting to believe that Lovecraft uh, was just kind of uh, worried about ridicule and that he actually uh believed in his uh, his dreams, that his dreams had more significance than uh, mere dreams. But uh, on the conscious level, that just wasn't the case. Lovecraft rejected his, uh, the reality of his dreams. I mean, he rejected them uh, energetically. Uh, he didn't just reject them. He, 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 he threw them out, tried to throw them out of his life uh, on the conscious level. When he talked about his dreams to other people, he, he talked about them as amusing fantasies. But uh, when any other writer or, or correspondent with him suggested that there might be something more significant to his dreams, he immediately dismissed that idea. So on the conscious level, he, uh, he was determined to cling to the belief that his dreams were trivial. And as I said before, he had to do that because... Uh, on an unconscious level, he was terrified that those dreams were going to consume him. They, they were going to draw him into the chaotic maelstrom that uh, existed uh, at the uh, base of the throne of the uh, demon Sultan Azathoth. And, <laughs> right. And, uh, which is one of the old ones that he wrote about. Uh, the god of Lovecraft's universe was uh, a mad, blind god, an idiot god who sat upon a black throne at the center of chaos. And chaos was a whirlpool. Chaos was a, a kind of uh, tornado that would draw people in and would not let them uh, escape. Uh, in, in his Dream Quest of Unknown Caddis, which is one of, his, one of the novels that he wrote, at the end of the novel, the hero, Randolph Carter, who is the alter ego of H.P. Lovecraft, uh, is, is in grave danger of being drawn into the vortex at the center of chaos, but he manages to escape back to uh, his beloved New England. Now, Lovecraft, in his life, that, that, was, uh, that was his very real unconscious fear. He was afraid that he would be overwhelmed by his dreams. So on the conscious level, he couldn't... He couldn't accept them in any way. It wasn't a matter of him uh, covertly believing that they might be significant and then pretending to others that they weren't significant. Lovecraft had to pretend to himself that his dreams weren't significant. I mean, he had to cling to that belief. So as not to go insane, right? Yeah, he did so for the rest of his life. He, he never acknowledged that his stories were any more than uh, amusing fiction. Hmm. 
Now, when we flash forward now to where this man is a legend, and when you talk about the Necronomicon, that is a book that I have picked up in the bookstore half a dozen times when the wife and I are out shopping. And I always hear familiar words from my wife when I pick that book up, put that down. Um. And and it, I mean, let's face it. You know, it it does look a, a bit ominous sitting there on the shelves, it being in black with the uh, very strange sigil uh, object on the front. Uh, here's the big question. I mean, if so many people hold to an idea or an ideal that perhaps this is more than what it seems to be. Uh, are you familiar if any occultist or magical practitioners have ever tried to put anything into works regarding this book? And if so, what have been the results of it? Uh, I'm not in touch myself with uh, people working uh, Lovecraft's current uh, in a serious way. Uh, but other occultists uh, I've heard have uh, have dabbled with it and tried to work with it. And there are people who are oh, a few rungs down from serious occultism uh, who uh, buy the uh, Simon Necronomicon, as it's called. That's the book that you saw on the, the shelf. Oh, okay. And, and uh, who work the uh, who work the spells in that book, and they find that it gives them very good results. They find that it's quite a potent uh, book. But I think the potency does not come from the actual material in that little paperback. The potency comes from the myth of the Necronomicon, which was created by H.P. Lovecraft. That's where the real potency comes from. Right. That's, that's where the energy is, uh, comes from. So, yeah, the uh, Necronomicon is being used uh, in magic. Uh, it's starting to be used in magic. It hasn't yet really achieved a kind of penetration where you can say that there is a definite school the Necronomicon in uh, Western esoteric practice. Right. Well, that kind of leads me into where I wanted to go, kind of apart from uh, Lovecraft's material and all of that, which is the other things that are on your website, which is a great website, by the way, regarding everything from, you know, um, the tarot cards and, and the evil eye and sigils and all of these things. Mm-hmm. And we've talked about sigils a little bit. Uh, on this show, and, we, and we've tried to get a couple of different guests to talk about this, um, which we haven't been that successful at gaining them. But I've always taken this look uh, at magic, which I studied um, a, a fair bit um, in my younger days, but um, never never truly put any kind of any meaningful practice at all, because I was always too afraid to do it, to be honest with you. But um, the one thing that I saw in every book that I read, whether it be hoodoo or voodoo or Wicca or any of these magical practices, the one thing that I keep or I kept seeing in every book that I read on it was that there seemed to be an innate focus on you have to believe this will work. You you must focus your intent. You must concentrate and you must not question how effective this will be. And that led me into this big thought of you know, hunting down the, uh, just say, the components of a Grigri bag uh, type of operation to, to, to bring you money, let's just say. You need a buckeye and a lodestone and the money drawing powder and the oil and the, the bag and all that. Uh, I kind of look at that as, you know, hunting down all these things or obtaining all these items and then doing this ritual uh, in order to make this bag to bring you money. Uh, 
all of that seems to me to be secondary. Um, and that the real point is how bad do you want it and how bad are you going to focus your intent on gathering these items and then doing this spell or this incantation exactly right. And that is where the real effect comes in. Would you disagree that the actual items are fairly meaningless other than being symbolic of your symbol of intention? Well, there's two levels of understanding there. The, the first level of understanding is that the way the mind uh, is shaped and the energies that are flowing through the mind are more important than the actual physical objects. Uh, you're, you know, you need power of will and you need belief and uh, you need intention. But there's another level um, of understanding when you realize that the physical objects have an existence on the astral plane. It's not just that they're physical objects. They, they have a reality uh, on the uh, astral level as well, which is a level of the mind. Uh, now, that reality is fairly weak unless they are created uh, on the astral level through uh, concentration and power of will of the magician working the spell, the, uh, the ritual. So... The objects are not really worthless. Uh, they're not really superfluous. Uh, there's a tendency of beginners in magic to assume that uh, once they start to understand how magic works, they, re- they, they start to uh, come to the conclusion that, well, all these detailed steps, these specific materials, uh, you know, virgin parchment and uh, the dragon's blood and all this other stuff that uh, are ingredients in these various spells, um, they start to think, well, I can leave this out, I can leave that out, because it's, it really doesn't matter. Uh, what takes a little, uh, a little more uh, mental um, clarity, I think, um, when thinking of magic, is, is the understanding that um, every object has its own astral uh, shape, its own nature. And if you change the object, you change that astral nature. So it's not... It's not quite so simple as saying that uh, the mind is everything and the physical uh, components of a ritual are superfluous. It's not, that's not quite the case. Uh, you can change the physical components of a ritual and still have good success with it, but you have to understand um, how those uh, components work together on the astral level and how they uh, have bearing upon the purpose for which the ritual is being worked. If you understand your purpose clearly, and if you understand the occult properties of physical things, you can change the actual physical objects and physical materials that are used in a ritual of magic, and you will still get good results because uh, the new sele- the, the uh, new selection of objects and selections of materials will still be powerful and will still have strong bearing in the realization of your ritual purpose. Huh. So. So there's two levels of understanding there. It's, uh, it's not quite so simple that you can just dismiss the, uh, the physical uh, paraphernalia of right. ritual work. Well, when substituting stuff like that, you know, if you're substituting one thing for another, does the very act of substituting one for another have to be based upon uh, your intention or the practice itself? I'm not sure what you're uh, what you're asking. Well, in other words, if you're gonna if you're gonna replace one item in a magical working with another, does the very act of replacing that object have to come forth from some other? Uh, in other words, you just can't say, "Well, I'm going to replace the lodestone with a piece of granite." Um, 
Well, when you do that replacement, you haven't really started the ritual yet. You're you're not really uh, focusing yeah. on anything at that point. You're you're, you're kind of uh, it's like a, a recipe in a kitchen. You know, you're preparing your ingredients and gathering them together. You haven't actually started to cook yet. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, um, you, have, you have to know the astral properties, the, the occult properties of various objects. Uh, you have to know, for example, that uh, the metal silver has lunar properties. Now, that doesn't mean much you know, to the average person. They'd say lunar properties, well, it's connected with the moon somehow. But what the average person doesn't, might not realize is that the moon has a whole uh, host, a whole uh, kind of a tree of, uh, of various occult properties. Uh, huh. um, and uh, if you substitute silver with something else, you have to substitute a material which is lunar so that you can retain that uh, that uh, set of properties that are lunar. Okay. Okay. I get you now. Grant Morrison is somebody that we've talked about on the show in regards to sigils, and I'm, I'm not sure if you're familiar with him or... I've heard the name, but uh, I don't know his work. Well, uh, in, a, in a lecture that he gave... Uh, that is that is viewable online, and we can put a link to that in our message board for everybody. Um, he basically says, you know, to to make to do sigil magic is essentially to write out your intention and then remove uh, all of the consonants, so you reduce everything to vowels. Then you remove the duplicate vowels, and you arrange all of your letters basically to form. Um, a shape that you find visually pleasing and you continue to reduce that down and simplify it over and over and over all the while focusing on your intention of what this sigil was meant to do. And the way he, I mean, I almost chuckled a little bit in the way that he described what you end up with at the end. He says, keep drawing it over and over until it looks magical. (laughs) And at that point you've got your sigil. I mean, is it really that simple, or is it a whole lot more complex than that to uh, to make a sigil to carry forth an intention? Uh, it sounds like uh, it sounds like he's been reading my books because that's essentially the uh, technique that I describe in, in various books. Uh, Familiar spirits, for example, is one of my books where I describe a system for sigil making, which I I've called power glyphs. The power glyphs are simple symbols which substitute for the uh, letters of the English alphabet, and by combining these symbols, you can make um, graphic uh, graphic symbols which are a little easier to hold in the mind and which uh, are, are kind of abstract. You don't have the word, you have a, a shape which represents the word. But in order to, uh, in order to create a sigil, uh, you're quite right. What you do is... Uh, you have an intention. You start with an intention. In magic, you always start with an intention, a purpose. Okay. And you, you refine that purpose down to a single sentence for the purpose of uh, clarity in your own mind. Um, if you can turn it into a single sentence, then you can hold it in your mind and you can focus your will upon it. If, if it's kind of vague and it's a paragraph, you know, and it's one thing and it's another thing, you're not going to be able to focus on it. So you turn it into a sentence, and that allows you to focus it on, focus on it in your own mind, but it also reduces the purpose of the ritual to a small set of words and a relatively small set of letters. Now, you take out redundant words like A and B and of because they're not really significant to the purpose. And uh, the letters you're left with, the significant letters of the sentence, you can uh, turn into graphic symbols 
Now, you can either, one way, one very old way that's described in the uh, Three Books of Occult Philosophy by Henry Cornelius Agrippa is to take the actual letters, Latin alphabet, you know, the English is based on the Latin alphabet. You take the, uh, the actual letters and you combine them into a composite symbol, uh, which will give you a sigil. And the uh, the power of that sigil is in the meaning of its uh, component letters when they're arranged in the right order as understood by the magician. Um, now, in my power glyph system, what I've done is replace the letters with symbols, simple symbols, which makes combining them a little easier and a little more elegant to look at. Uh, the end result's a little more pleasing from an artistic point of view. And... Uh, it also has the value in removing the actual letters from the sigil, so that when you look at the sigil, you're looking at a set of lines which represent the letters but aren't the letters. And you can hold that compound graphic symbol in your mind a little easier than you could a set of letters. Uh, it becomes abstract in your mind. You're looking at it. You know on one level of your mind what it means because you've just composed it. But on another level of your mind, you look at it, and all you see is a set of lines. So that, that allows the meaning to uh, go deeper into your mind than would be the case if you just focused on a sentence. And that's the power of the sigil. Uh, you, you sublimate uh, the meaning so that it passes from your conscious mind to your unconscious mind. And you do that by translating words, which are very much... Uh, conscious entities i mean we think in we think in terms of language you, you translate those words into simple line symbols and line symbols don't really mean too much on the conscious level they're more they they touch the artistic aspect of the mind which is a, a deeper aspect and uh but they still on another level contain the meaning of the essential purpose for which you're working the ritual. Right. So uh, by creating a symbol, you're basically taking your ritual purpose and you're transferring it from your conscious mind to your subconscious mind. And that's, I think, a large part uh, of the power that comes from uh, sigil magic. I mean, at that point, once it's done and once you've fixed it in your mind, is this the kind of thing where you... You put the written form away, or you get rid of the, the the written form and strictly hold it in the mind, or is that the the, the thing you you get up and walk away from and you try not to think about it? Well, you've got to forget about it. Uh, when you work a ritual, there are two there are two phases to the ritual. One is total concentration and focus of all the will and emotional energy. You build up as much emotional energy as you can. You focus your will upon your ritual purpose when you're working the ritual. And you focus that upon the sigil. I mean, if you're making a physical object to uh, embody the purpose of the ritual, you focus upon that, that physical sigil that's drawn on a piece of paper, engraved on a piece of metal. And then once the ritual reaches its climax, which is usually not a sexual climax, although in the case of uh, Aleister Crawley and uh, A.O. Spar, you know, it actually was a sexual climax, but it right. didn't have to be a sexual climax. Um, then you completely put the purpose uh, of the ritual out of your mind. Now, you don't force it out of your mind because 
it's impossible not to think of something that you're thinking of. You can't not think of uh, purple elephants, you know? Yeah, so stay puff marshmallow man, yeah. Yeah, the minute, that's right, exactly. I mean, well, there you go. There's a <laughs> magical message in the, in the simplest things, you know? Sure. Um, you can't not think of uh, the ritual. If you, if you tell yourself not to think of it, you will be unable not to think of it because mm-hmm. you'll, you'll be not thinking of it. <laughs> right. But, uh, but what you do is uh, you do a kind of a mental uh, jujitsu, you know, kind of like a, like a judo in your mind that... Uh, you just relax and uh, and just let it fall back into the background of your mind and, and just forget about it. But you don't try to forget about it. You just kind of let it go, let it slip away and focus on other things. And you not only have to uh, stop thinking about it, you have to stop worrying about it. You have to let it go emotionally. That's very important, releasing it emotionally. And when you release the purpose for your ritual, uh, you know, mentally and emotionally, intellectually and emotionally, uh, that's when it starts to work. Hmm. You know, you release it uh, consciously. It's gone from the conscious mind. It starts to work on a deeper level. Hmm. Well, here's a, uh, I guess this is more of a personal question for me. I, I live in a house where we see a fair amount of a very strange activity. Let's, let's kind of uh, couch it that way. And um, when, when you were talking before about the, different elements of a practice and, and then how they exist on a different level than just the physical. Um, there's something I've noticed probably over the past few months. I bought a, a rather large pendant of a, uh, a meteorite just because I wanted it uh, for no other reason than I wanted it. Then I, I, I think meteorites are a fascinating thing. So I wanted one and then, you know, I've had one around my neck uh, for a while and then I'll take it off and, and and put it put it away for a month or so, and then put it back on. And uh, up until actually night before last, um, I never noticed before that when I'm wearing a meteorite, I tend not to see many things. It, it, it in other words, the, the 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 strange forms that I'll see in a hallway or um, the odd ball of light here and there doesn't seem to. I don't seem to see anything. And when I looked back upon wearing that uh, in, in past months, these were the times where I saw very, very little in the way of strange things. Does that mean anything to you? And I, I, is there any meaning to a meteorite and that sort of act? I'm sure it could be, could be meaningful on a variety of levels. Uh, first, let me ask you, is it a metallic meteorite? Uh, yes. Well, in traditional magic, uh, one of the uh, themes that runs through magic is that uh, spirits fear uh, iron, cold iron. Mm. If you want to drive away a spirit, uh, you present the spirit or threaten the spirit with cold iron. Now, usually it's in the form of a sword or a knife, a dagger, but uh, really it's the metal that uh, drives away the spirit. now, why that would be is difficult to uh, to guess. Iron is associated with Mars. Mars is the uh, sphere of uh, violence and uh, aggression and warfare. So uh, it's possible that that energy associated with uh, with iron and steel, of course, is a variety of iron. Uh, meteors are usually nickel nickel iron. Uh, it could be that the the actual uh, 
component of the uh, meteorite that you're wearing around your neck is what's uh, driving these uh, these spiritual beings away from your perception. Mm. Uh, rather than the fact that it's a meteorite, you know, it may be the fact that it's uh, made of uh, made of iron. Just simply the metal itself. Yeah. Um. Well, and my last one for you is, is again, a kind of an off-the-wall personal one. Uh, on this show, we've talked a lot about, um, uh, I mean, predominantly ufological things. And, uh, and we've kind of distanced ourselves a little bit from the material view uh, in, in a certain way. Uh, but one of the things I've talked a lot about is, um, is literally what I've called the more you give, the more you get. Um, in the way of UFOs, and I've I've talked to so many people over the past twenty three, twenty four years uh, about their ufological experiences, whether they be contact experiences or sighting experiences of very odd things in the sky. And one of the things that I've come away with is that um, you get a whole lot more of the story when you start talking to those people about how deep into the subject that they were and how focused on the subject that they were, um, how much they thought about it, or how much they feared it, and then feared the fear of it. Um, and you come, you come away with that, seeing that uh, a lot of people uh, who have very, let's say, undeniable or unrefutable experiences in their own minds um, are ones that um, have, have put forth a lot of effort almost to the point of obsession in discussing or dissecting UFO cases and that sort of thing. And I've noticed this actually in my own life uh, to a pretty large degree. Uh, what does that say to you? I mean, in, in all of these things and all of this talk about focus of intent, um, it seems to carry across to me, uh, even in, in something that most people would think is a, a nuts and bolts aircraft of some sort, um, we still get the same kind of thing that we talk about when we're talking about uh, demons or, or ghosts and all of these things. And I see like a thread of connection here uh, to all of these. I think there's more than a connection. I, I think uh, we're talking about the same thing here. My own view is that UFO phenomenon is real, but uh, I don't think it's a physical phenomenon. I don't think it's... Uh, I don't think it's little green men coming down in metal spaceships. Uh, I think it's a spiritual phenomenon. I think that uh, what are perceived uh, over the past 50 or 60 years as aliens are really spirits. And I think that uh, interactions with uh, UFOs is really pretty much the same thing that's been going on for thousands of years with people interacting with, uh, with the fairies and with, uh, mm -hmm. with the gods and with other spiritual beings. We're talking about, uh, you know, in my view, spiritual interaction. Now, when dealing with spirits, uh, if your mind is uh, concentrating on the spirits, if, if you're open and receptive to them, they come much more easily than uh, they come to someone whose mind is indifferent uh, or, indeed, if it's someone who is hostile to the idea. Uh, once you open your mind to a spiritual phenomenon, um, you'll see it much more frequently. And I wouldn't be surprised if the people who are involved in UFO studies, who read many books and watch uh, 
videos and uh, have conferences with other abductees and people who've experienced and seen UFOs, uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they're opening their mind to this uh, spiritual reality and, in fact, inviting more contacts and communications with it. Now, that wouldn't be the case, I don't believe, if uh, UFOs were actual physical objects, which uh, I just uh, I come to that right. conclusion myself, that they're not physical. But if you look upon them as spiritual objects, as spiritual beings, uh, spiritual manifestations, then it kind of makes sense. Hmm. Well, I mean, to that end, um, the $64,000 question is, is that a positive interaction or a negative one, or is it neither, in your opinion? Positive or negative? Well, I think it can have uh, useful results for a person's life if they uh, are um, are open to it and not frightened of it. You know, people who are terrified of these experiences, uh, when they have them, it often has a negative result because they, uh, they feel they're being uh, persecuted by these uh, spiritual creatures, or I suppose in, in the world of UFO phenomenon, it would be... Uh, gray aliens who are, are, are following them and persecuting them. But uh, if you're not uh, frightened and if you uh, embrace the phenomenon and interact with it deliberately and consciously, uh, it can actually have some useful results in your life. Um, you can communicate with these beings and learn things about yourself and things about others, and you can actually ask them to perform tasks for you, and they will perform tasks uh, that's really one of the uh, main uh, foundations of traditional Western magic is uh, invoking spirits uh, and asking them for help, asking them for assistance or ordering them to do certain tasks. Why? Why will they do it for you? There, well, there are two ways. I mean, uh, in traditional Western uh, Western uh, evocation, uh, demon evocation, that they do it because they're threatened with punishment. But now if you interact with higher spirits who are... Uh, a little more pleasant and a little easier to get along with, they'll uh, often help you because uh, they like interacting with you. It's just uh, done out of love or affection, you know, as, as an act of friendship. Huh. <laughs> well, that's a new one. It depends uh, on the spirits, you know. If you, yeah. It depends on the spirits you're dealing with. If you're dealing with uh, pleasant and benevolent spirits, you can you can ask them for help, and they'll give you help in the way a friend would help you. Now, if you decide to deal with more uh, earthy spirits, uh, those that are usually known as demons, then they're not going to help you of their own accord, but they can be threatened with various forms of punishment, and uh, they can be compelled to help. Huh. One would want to watch one's back after that kind of operation, no? I mean, doesn't yeah, seem I like the best kind of thing to threaten. Personally, I don't deal with demonic magic. I've made the decision in my own life that I really don't need the complications that arise from <laughs> dealing with demons, you know? Yeah, yeah well, this is true. Um, and I guess maybe I should have asked this uh, from the very get-go, but this is my last one for you. Um, what brought you to this? What, what, uh, what, what sparked your interest to become involved in all of this and to study all this at such great length? Lovecraft and I have a lot in common, and one of the things we have in common is that he was an atheist when he was a young man, and I was an atheist until I uh, was in university. And I was a complete materialist, 
And I just really didn't have any patience for religion. I didn't have any patience for esotericism or spirituality. I, I had no interest because I, I just rejected the whole field. And I just happened, you know, uh, to be playing with a deck of tarot cards, and that's what opened my mind was the tarot images. I started to manipulate tarot, laying out the tarot cards in various patterns, and I realized, much to my surprise, that these images on the tarot cards were creating meanings in my mind. Different arrangements of the cards uh, would create different meanings. And I found that very interesting because the meanings were not explicit. They weren't meanings that were conveyed in words. They were meanings that were conveyed in uh, images, symbols. There were, you know, collections of symbols were creating ideas or... Uh, you can't really call them ideas because they're not expressed in words. They're, they're uh, a kind of uh, mind states. Different arrangements of the cards were creating different mind states. And I just decided to research this. I thought that was really interesting. And I started to read and study up on various aspects of Western occultism. And uh, the deeper I got into it, the more I realized that I'd been kind of uh, simple-minded, you know, in my youth. Uh, the atheist philosophy is kind of a simplistic philosophy. I mean, the people who hold it think they know everything and that uh, people who believe in religion and spirituality are fools. I, I know this because I was one of them. <laughs> I was an atheist. Right. I, I used to think this way about people who believed in spirituality or religious people. Right. But when I started to get into Western magic, you know, in the scholarly sense, I started to study it just out of curiosity. I came to the realization that uh, there's actually something to this. I mean, the world is not really so simple that it can be explained in materialistic terms. I mean, there's a lot more to the world than materialism can cover. And part of one of the ways to access that mysterious uh, outer boundary that lies beyond the sphere of the material is to get into occultism. I mean, the, the word occult means hidden. It's what's hidden from view. And if you study the occult, you're studying things that lie beyond the material plane. But they're, uh, and the deeper you get into it, the more you learn, you know, the more you learn about the, uh, the reality of these immaterial uh, regions of the universe. Well, I'll tell you what, I, I beg for you to come back on this show at a future time because we could do hours with you. Um, but Jeremy, do you want to kind of wrap us up? Donald Tyson, thank you for bearing with us through technical difficulties and staying yes. extra long. Much appreciated. Uh, the book is The Dream World of H.P. Lovecraft, His Life, His Demons, His Universe. Um, and go to www.donaldtyson.com and look at his other work. Look at everything he's got on there. Fascinating website. Fascinating book. Fascinating fellow. Please, please, please come back. Donald, thank you so much for, yes. uh, for doing Peritopia. Many thanks. Oh, it's very pleasant to be here. <laughs> Hi, this is David Roundtree, author of Paranormal Technology, and you're listening to Paratopia. So the Jeff. So the Jer. Good to hear your voice again. Indeed. Seems like only three seconds ago we were giving the intro to this show. <laughs> it does seem like that. Yeah. Um, so, uh, I actually, I, I don't normally do this, but I jotted down some things that, wow. that we had talked about 
to to mention to you here. One is mm-hmm. meteorite. When you were talking about meteorite, yeah, um, and and the properties and and what it does to you and all that. Well, weren't we saying that that abductees who have some sort of things stuck in them and nine times out of ten it allegedly is meteorite the, the this thing that uh, dr what's his face pulls out of people dr lear <laughs> yes people pay <laughs> for this show by the way <laughs> they pay for for great professional information like dr what's his face yes dr right. lear <laughs> um so does that speak to you of uh that or did that just go off in my head and for no reason uh, I think it was probably a misfire in your cranial cavity. Um, now I don't I don't see anything to that really. I I I'm sorry I don't put a lot of stock in in Lear's work, um, and especially after um, what Wes Owsley had told us about that entire ball of wax there. As far as you know, exactly, uh, and you, you pay for this show, by the way. Well, and, uh, I, and I said ironopathy, <laughs> so I remember that part. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I you know, I don't know what to make of that. Um, it just kind of occurred to me the other day that I had a really dry spell there for a while, which you'll probably remember. And um, during that time, I was I was wearing the big. Uh, I can't remember what meteor it was. I have a two Sakote Aline. Uh, fragments, and then I have uh, I, I think it's a Campo de Celio. I hope I'm saying that way right, but it's a very shiny, silvery meteorite piece, and it's large. I mean, it's about a little bit bigger than a quarter, I would say, which is big for something that goes around your neck. And um, and I don't remember anything really all that odd happening when I had that on, and so uh, it's residing in my jewelry box upstairs right now. So, um. I also don't know what to make about the whole notion of cold metal because I don't know how that speaks to seeing things near a bathroom where there's pipes which are made of metal, namely cold metal. So There's a lot you don't know in this world, Jeff. I, well, yeah. A lot you uh, don't know. A lot. Plenty. What am but, I wearing? Uh, a blue t-shirt. No, sorry. See? I didn't remote view, so what do you want? <laughs> Next time. I don't know. So so are you saying that, that there's still a connection, it's just that that's not the connection? I don't know if that's it or not. Um, I just know that whenever I wear that, um, I tend not to have anything happen. Um, I don't well, how feel How tenuous that. is that, uh, what you're saying there anyway? I mean, can you really go back in your head and remember when you were wearing that and correlate when you saw things? Well, that was just what occurred to me the other night because um, I wore it, I don't know, a couple of days. And um, and I noticed that I didn't really yeah, – this place is getting a lot like the condo was in in so many ways in that you do see a lot of things out of the corner of your eye, that sort of thing. And it just occurred to me the other night that, you know – the visual cortex was rather calm and able to focus on the TV and not have my eyes darting down the hallway or that sort of thing. And I just happened to think that I had that on. And then the more I thought about it, the more I remembered there was another lapse of time where I saw nothing. And uh, to my memory, it was when I polished it and put it back on. I remember polishing it 
And I remember that was um, – it was like the third of one month that I was doing that and I polished all of them. And then I decided, well, I'll put this one on. And then for about, I don't know, three weeks to a month, there was practically nothing. And um, and then it got dirty again and, and I uh, I don't know. Somebody else gave me a piece of jewelry and I put that on my chain instead. And, and then things seemed to pop up again. Yeah, my answer is is uh, or my question is, you know, what about silver? Now, silver decidedly has some sort of property to it as well, because that figures heavily in in uh, in magical practices, the silver and all of that. And I wear silver every day of my life, and that doesn't seem to have any effect one way or the other. Um, but maybe I'll do a little experiment and just see. Although now that I've noticed it, is that going to matter? Is that going to make me? Um, either less inclined to see it or peak to see something happen when I've got it on. I don't know. It just seemed an odd coincidence to me that I noticed that. Well, and the other thing I want to talk about was uh, the great old ones, or the ones that are, you know, come from the place between stars, mm-hmm. uh, whose bodies disintegrate when they die and who you can't really focus on because you can't really perceive them correctly. Mm-hmm. Sound like anyone we know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, didn't you kill one of them guys? <laughs> kill? I don't know about that. Crush something? Crumble? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's a new recipe, Alien Crumble. <laughs> delicious. Uh, <laughs> delicious. Light and flaky. Yeah, that sounds, uh, that sounds familiar and interesting. I, you know, again, I, I don't know. All, all you can basically do is say they sound similar. That's about as far as I can really say anything to that i would love to know what mental illness his parents suffered if it was the same mental illness and what it was or if it was even mental illness maybe they just were vivid dreamers too that's a possibility um i don't know i he seems like a really fascinating figure and um i didn't know that he was not a famous writer like hg wells or something like that until long after he was gone um that seems an odd thing that um that a guy who you know who who feared madness the way he did and all of that not to be able to attain that kind of success um before he passed away was kind of ironic and the notion of being a rich kid with nothing to do in his younger years and just kind of laying around doing nothing. And, um, it's about as anti-structural as I think you can get. And you brought that up, uh, during the interview. So it doesn't surprise me that the guy, you know, did all these astral projections and, and, uh, or at least that's, that's what they surmise is that that's what was going on. And he was gleaning all this material from those experiences, but weird that he would, so deny that as being anything more than dreams or the onset of madness. And that's what I find kind of kind of wild. How how much disdain he had for you know people who believed in any esoteric subject when he himself is the master of esoteric writing. That was interesting. Yeah, yeah, and um, I, I don't know how much stock I put into. Well, he was uh, astrally traveling because it sounds like the description of. That Donald gave of astral travel just sounds like a vivid dream to me. Mm. I mean, I've had vivid dreams where, you know, it seems to come in, information seems to come in through 
all of your senses and everything's vivid and you're flying over something and all that. But I mean, it's not a real place. It's not mm. a dream. In fact, um, interestingly, the night that we did this, I had a, a very vivid dream of exactly how the singularity would go. Mm. Uh, so much so that, that I uh, am tempted to not talk about it in case somebody takes the idea and then that becomes the reality. <laughs> <laughs> I might write it out uh, for you know the Peritopia magazine article, my, my obligatory Peritopia magazine article. Um, but I just I, I found it fascinating that I had this you know extremely vivid and uh, um, fully fleshed out sensical dream. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know the night that we did this uh, this interview. Now now you say you know you know that's not real. What? But how do you define that? How do you? How do you qualify well, I don't that? Know that that's say, not real. I don't know that that won't end up being what what happens. But I've had vivid dreams that are um, where you wake up into the dream and you can move around and you're conscious. Uh-huh. You know, you're fully conscious, but you know you're dreaming. Uh, part of being conscious in your dream is knowing that you're dreaming. I mean, there was no part of me that was like, "Yes, I'm off in a real world and this is, you know, all happening." Because it was. Um, I mean, sometimes it happens that the entire dream is vivid. Is that lucid? Mm-hmm. And sometimes it happens that it starts off a, a normal dream and then becomes – you wake up into it and become uh, lucid during right. the course of it. So clearly in those dreams, you know, um, where it's just like a New York landscape or something, mm-hmm. um, it, it, there's there's nothing real going on, you know. Mm. I mean that, w- there was one that was vivid that was – to my mind, it was the University of Hartford where I went to college. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't really the campus. It was like this um, library with no roof, you know, this sort of out – well, it wasn't outdoors. I mean, there were rows and rows of books, and I was sort of flying over them. And hmm. I knew it was the University of Hartford, but it wasn't – you know, obviously there's no there's no actual library that looks like that. So I guess you could say, well, how do you know that wasn't somewhere else or something? But, you know, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Because I was dreaming. That's how. <laughs> okay. So you, you definitely uh... – ground your dreams in the mind yeah well i mean you know i've had the peculiar experience or two that shows me that there is something more Mm -hmm. you know certainly having someone come into my dream and heal my back through my stomach Mm -hmm. happened uh and then there's you know the the occasion that i've talked about where where i wake up and i talk to the dream characters and i Ask them, you know, was I really abducted? And then they become sort of demonic and weird and all this sort of stuff. But mm-hmm. um, so, you know, do I know what to make of that? No, but um, I don't think I've had anything where I would say I've traveled to another place. Um, okay. Which doesn't mean I discount it. You know, just because I haven't experienced it doesn't mean I discount it. Right. But certainly H.P. Lovecraft wasn't saying that he did that. He was saying the opposite. No, these are just dreams. Just dreams, yeah. But then I guess the argument is he was saying that because he actually feared that they weren't, and he feared for his sanity. I mean, you've read his stuff. Is he grossly ahead of his time? Yeah, well, I think anyone anyone who can make something like the Necronomicon, where people to this day are still believing that it's real, you know. Right. Uh, that's pretty ahead of your time. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I've only read a few short stories, and they were great. You know, they're very grim, as a grimoire is prone to be. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, I always got that sense, I mean, just from 
and the couple of things that I've seen on television, I've never read any of his books, which probably people are aghast at that I haven't, but I haven't. I, I did get that sense that he was, um, it just seemed very, very much ahead of the curve in the way of most writers writing maybe that sort of thing, if anyone was writing that sort of thing, which I assume there were a few. His stuff just seems like it could translate very well to modern day with very little effort. Whereas, you know, people like Poe, I mean, Poe certainly is a phenomenal author and poet, but, you know, to read his stuff is to know when it was written. And, um, and maybe a lot of Lovecraft stuff, and I, like I said, I haven't cracked a bit of it yet, but from what I've read, he was uh, very ahead of his time in the way of conceptuals and, and the, the depths of story and all of that kind of thing. So uh, he's certainly an interesting figure. But um, Well, uh, I, I find it know. interesting that, that uh, like, again, I mean, you know, he was into astronomy, he was into science, he was mm-hmm. – a rationalist by day and a you know deep dreamer by night, and so I wonder, you know, as I said in the interview, maybe I'll just flesh it out a bit more. If he wasn't a man for his age, you know, that age where magical thinking was giving way to scientific reductionism, you know, mm-hmm. um, it just seems like there were a whole bunch of people once again who came out around that time uh, in all sort of aspects of human thought or human. Mm-hmm. I don't even know what the right word is. Consciousness? I don't know. I mean, spiritually, you had the theosophists, which turned into Krishnamurti. Um, you had Einstein, right? Mm-hmm. And, and all of his peers. Um, you know, it was just this sort of renaissance of great philosophers and great thinkers, all sort of turning the page, as it were, on um, on humanity, on, on where we would go. Right. Uh, I find that amazing, and, and it seems like he sort of fits in there. You know, he sort of yeah. bridges that gap between the religiosity and the fear, and and you know the dark ages, right, uh, right, and and where we were going. Yeah. So, what did you think about the objects in a magical practice not being solely just for the focus of intent? In other words, the eye of Newt isn't just hard to get because it's an eye of a Newt, but there actually is something to that. There's actually something that exists on another level with that object that helps a an intention fulfill itself. Well, see, again, I, I find that interesting, but I, I don't – I mean, how do you see that? How do you know that? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> and that might just be my own ignorance of not knowing how to see or know that. I mean, it makes as much sense to me that that would be true as that that wouldn't. You know, mm. I mean, what you said makes just as much sense to me. Um, yeah, I I don't um, quite understand how some things exist on an astral level and all of that because I'm just not familiar with any of that stuff. But I I could see, well, and I guess this all boils down to very old old knowledge that has been passed along for centuries, and it could be that you know the the quartz crystal. Everybody knows the quartz crystal as being a uh, like a battery of energy sort of thing. And, uh, you know, you get a magical practice say, well, you know, I could substitute granite for that because that kind of holds the same property. It might not be as strong, but it certainly is going to do the work. And, you know, you only know that from what's been passed down from the ages. Where did that originate from? That's That's what I'm most curious about. Like the first person who said, 
you know, tow a frog is a powerful thing because the frog leaps from lily pad to lily pad with great agility. So we'll put that in this potion to make this man run faster. I mean, is it really as simple as that or is there something else going on well, there? Well, I mean, at some point you've got to get into do these ingredients speak to you in the same way that, mm-hmm. you know, the shamans say, well, uh, you know, the plants told me how to make it. Exactly, well, exactly. Are these are these potions, are these rituals speaking? <laughs> that same sort of thing, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh. there is a weird sort of animism here that that we tend to disregard, you know, mm-hmm. that seems to exist. What I find interesting, the more that I talk with people about it, and the more I read online here and there, is this whole notion of... And this came up in one of McKenna's lectures, too, because he was talking about, uh, you know, inanimate objects that really have no great bearing or meaning on reality. In other words, everything is just a a sort of construct on its own. And someone in the crowd asked him, well, what about the mushroom? The mushroom is just a thing. And when you eat this thing, you're transported to this other level of consciousness and how do you rectify that everything is just a symbolic meaning of itself and he says do you mean the act of taking something into your body for a specific purpose was was kind of his answer to that and so i have to wonder if whatever these objects are and whatever they mean and whatever they translate to is just another Almost reminds me of like Neo in the Matrix. You take the blue pill, the red pill. You know, it's a symbolic meaning of exactly what's going to happen and exactly where your rabbit hole is going to go. Are you going out the door or down the hole? Yeah, but if you don't tell you know? anyone anything about shrooms and you give them shrooms, they're still going to trip. Yeah. So it's not, <laughs> yeah. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But the question is: is what is you know is the shroom a thing on its own? You know, is it on its own? Is it this this thing that has this action? And whether or not the person knows it's irrelevant, its action in this world is to do that thing. And I think what he was getting at was, you know, uh, uh, almost the the notion of none of this being real, like everything's being sort of a, uh, I don't know, not a simulation, but everything is. Uh, Everything is is in the construct of our reality is just another part of reality. So if you know one is one with everything else and blah blah blah, then it all comes around to being it's all the same stuff. So why would this object have this property to be able to do this? And you could go, well, it's chemical, blah blah blah. It interacts with a certain chemical in the brain, and there you go. But you know he's alluded to more than that in some other lectures that I've heard him talk about. I don't remember offhand what the exact terminology was that he used but uh, but the way it was explained was was pretty interesting and in this whole bigger aspect of the act of doing something the act of committal um you know which kind of reminds me of this sort of thing where you've got an object that on its own a lodestone is just a magnetic stone uh but putting it with other objects enact some kind of property and then your intention on top of that, you know, I think you asked, um, Barbara three crow, I think about something like this. And she said something about, no, the objects do have a a certain, uh, property that they are not just a symbolic, you know, 
hard to get thing as a notion of how far are you willing to go or how how hard are you willing to hunt for that lodestone or that buckeye or whatever to 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 get that is that your sole intention or do the the, the actual objects have any properties themselves and she said yes that uh, that they did have some kind of property to them maybe that's what she was talking about yeah so i found that really kind of interesting i don't understand it but i find it interesting and i have to wonder um you know, could you like the people who make money drawing powder? Let's just say everybody works in that factory. Are they rich? <laughs> you know, I mean, eh, or does that have no meaning until you put meaning to it? You know, I mean, it's just I don't know. Well, even if you put meaning to it, you know, the, what is any of this? How much stock do we put in any of this is, is one question. I mean, I just watched um, a documentary, and perhaps you've seen it, Anvil, the story of Anvil. Have you seen it? Fantastic, this? yes. Okay, yes, fantastic. It's basically a real-life spinal tap. Uh-huh. Uh, and the lead singer is like the eternal optimist, you know? He's, he's yes. been in this band <laughs> with his friends since he, they were 14. They're now in their 50s, and yes. they're still going to make it big. Well, I mean, he literally believes that right down to his bones, as you describe being necessary to to pull off any of these intention things you need to really right. really feel it well if anyone really really feels it it's this guy yeah ellipsis ellips is pretty uh <laughs> pr- pretty pretty adamant about it yeah yeah so that would be an example of uh that that doesn't work <laughs> well um actually it does because they are they have essentially made it they've they're all over television uh uh, they just uh, did dates with ACDC, and I mean, effectually, they've regained their 15 minutes of fame uh, for that. I mean, they were uh, pretty formidable back in the day. I mean, they they had a following. It's just their management and their record company didn't support them the way they should have, and they kind of fell through the cracks when everybody else came along. But, um, but isn't there? There's got to be a time limit on on this theory of intention, like. <laughs> I don't think you can say 50 years later when somebody made a documentary about them uh-huh. that that counts. Because <laughs> that guy had those intentions for the entire 50 years. Right. And that's an awful long time to wait. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But they were still doing what they were doing. I mean, they never stopped playing out. They never stopped making records. They never stopped anything. Like, they just kept going. And again, look at the manager that they had in the beginning of that of that film. That's probably what they were dealing with through most of their of their career. It's bad choices in one way. It's just bad choices. But yeah, as far as his intention and all of that and how that works, I, I don't know. Um, you, you could you could honestly say that uh, you know clearly the wives said the stream is over, you know. And I think Rob, the drummer, he kind of could go either way. It's like, you know, I could, I, I've got a job, I could do this, or I could uh, not, <laughs> you know. So clearly, Lips is about the only one who's, who's, who's hard at it and, and, uh, and, and kind of never lost his drive to do that sort of thing. But, uh, but now they're, they're um, um, I don't know what their new album's doing, but uh, I'll put it to you this way. It sounded rather unappetizing to me when you throw swing jazz and metal together. <laughs> Sorry, it just doesn't work, guys. Well, it's just funny because he reminds me, Lips does, of uh, my ex-roommate Jeff O'Leaner, who was the lead singer of The Nuns. 
mm-hmm. he had that same eternal optimism. You know, uh-huh. the nuns are. You know, this is it. Now we're. This is the one. This is the one. Everything is the one. Right. You know, every next project is the project, and I yeah. get that way about stuff too. So it's like sure. for the grace of whatever. Um, so I completely understand it, but but I certainly d- don't have the blind commitment and faith to my own project, I guess, that, that even Jeff Oliner did and does probably to this mm. day. But it's never going to be the one. And you can tell by listening to the music that it, it just doesn't have a place. And as you said about Poe, you can tell <laughs> when it was written. Well, oh, absolutely. You can tell when this music was written, you know? Absolutely. Same thing with yeah. Anvil. You know, it, it's of a different era. It is, yeah. Uh, it is. So, uh, so anyway, getting back on point, I mean, what do you do with somebody like that? How do you fit that into if you just really believe it in your bones, it's going to, you're going to throw it out into the universe and then you're going to get it back. I mean, certainly ain't happening for the nuns. Uh, I would argue argue didn't happen for Anvil, even if they made it thanks to a documentary. Right. I guess the easy answer for me is to say is that it's not as easy as we think it is or, or that, uh, maybe there's other factors. I mean, if you go back to the whole Anvil thing, I mean, the guy was delivering, food to schools and that sort of thing. And that was how he was making his living. I mean, I imagine at some point, I mean, here's, here's what I mention a lot to people because, you know, uh, I'm not sure how a human being actually is able to cope with this. And I'm sure a lot of people aren't in show business, but, um, there was a great band from back in the eighties called triumph. They were from Canada. Uh, and, uh, their guitar player was Rick Emmett. He's a phenomenal musician. I mean, phenomenal. Can play anything. Metal, hard rock, jazz, uh, classical. He is an amazing talent. And I saw him back in, I don't know, the mid-80s somewhere uh, with Triumph at Baltimore Arena. And I had seen him at the the Capitol Center. And these are huge venues. And... Um, and one day I'm surfing around the net, and there he is. He's playing a coffee house in Philadelphia. <laughs> so I have to go. And I go, and I think to myself, you know, how do you go from being this major act, a headlining act that sold out every time they came through this town? And, uh, and the next thing you know, you're, you're, you're not even playing in Baltimore. You're in Philly somewhere in a coffee house playing to less than 100 people. And I would figure that when you're talking about somebody like uh, Anvil, where there are so many uncertainties and they've tried so many times with absolute failure just because of the things around them. They haven't attracted the right manager. They don't have the right booking agent. Um, and like you say, their, their, their music is, um, is dated. And so um, there's a lot of things working against you there. And I think in the beginning of that film, you can see how depressed that they both are over just not being able to climb the ladder again, not being able to get back up on top again. And, um, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think when you, there's a lot of self doubt and there's a lot of walking that fine tightrope and thinking about falling off. I think often you do fall off of it. And so I wonder, I mean, you you mentioned how committed this guy is to having something happen and, you know, he's got all the intention in the world, but he's also got a lot of doubt and a lot of frustration, which you definitely see in the film. And I wonder how much of that plays into throwing off track whatever you're trying to make happen for yourself. Um, 
I mean, on one hand, you could say, look, it's all about work. It's all about how much effort you put into it. And on the other hand, uh, you could say with a, a, a measure of effort and uh, an absolute undeniable this is going to happen and never a thought of I'm never going to get out of here. I'm never going to get to this place like that kind of thought entering your mind, I think, is what can. This is just how my head works. I see that as you're tearing down everything that you've tried to build up in your own mind uh, as far as intention. Uh, that's it. Well, there could also be a thing where a piece of this where they'd never let the intention go. Mm-hmm. You know, it was always this, this is it, this is it, this is it, this is it. And there was never a rest. To right. Go, okay. I, I give, you know, <laughs> I'm let the universe well, take over here. <laughs> and well, and there's also the, yeah, not forgetting it, but there's also this thing of, um, I think this is it, or this is, you know, that sort of thing. I mean, this, this is what he t- was talking about during the interview about the sigil and how you've got to walk away and forget it and let it be and not concentrate on forgetting it because then you're remembering it. That all goes back again to how you think and how you think is not, uh, you know, when people have told me about, uh, seeing UFOs and, and can you concentrate and focus upon this thing? And it's like, I personally, my personal thought is that, yes, that is a possibility. Uh, but it's the questions you're asking can't be, are they real? It's got to be, they are real. Will I see them? Uh, and, and bigger, deeper questions than that that goes on and on. But if you're thinking about, you know, just throw yourself into a band and say, you know, this could, this is it. Inside, you're going, this could be it. This could be where it goes. And I think the notion of it could be, or this is the break we've been waiting for, that sort of thing always puts something in the future for you, not now. And so I think if you want to be a rock star, I think you've got to say, you already are a rock star. <laughs> you know, uh, you're not going to see the saucer. The saucer's already there. You're just going to walk there. You're going to walk to that place, and there it's going to be. Um, I, I think that's the that's the level of intention you have to have. You can't have the putting it out in front of you in the future somewhere like this is going to happen if I do this. It's not an if. It's going to. It is that. It is there. You are all there now, and that's how you have to approach this thing. Otherwise, you're just... I don't know, it, it's kind of masturbatory. You just don't ever reach that plateau because it's always one step ahead of you. Well, would you say that it's the same It's the same uh, thing, the exact same thing? Um, putting your intention into, I'm going to see a saucer as I'm going to be a brilliant rock star. Do you think that it's the same mechanism? And if so, then does that mean that in both cases, something is listening back? Because it seems like with the saucer thing, there's something listening and responding and with mm-hmm. the other there's almost this sort of fishing around some undefined mental space mm-hmm. um to hook on the line the closest thing that matches your intention <laughs> and reel it into you i think you know, I th- those that. those are different things right so you're saying more or less a mechanism of reality hacking reality as opposed to communicating with something yeah that's sentient on its own you think there are two two different things going on there, or do you think um, one? I think there's when you're talking about paranormal stuff. If there is some kind of sentient to itself, then I would say that the mechanism is allowing that sentience to interact, as opposed to shutting it out. 
Um, I think that the the mechanism is the go between or the middleman in that kind of relation. I think it's uh, um, one has to act or draw upon another. You know that sort of sort of thing. And I'll tell you um, what is what is odd. And here's one of my dreams. You want one of mine? Here is mine. I can't remember. Can't remember what the situation was that, and I'm pretty sure I told you about this dream too. But this was just inexplicably weird. I I'm trying to remember how this came up. It somehow or another, I read I either I either watched a documentary about Hendrix or I read a book about him, and I was taking online uh, kind of lessons and playing some of his music. So I was really into what he was doing, and. One of the things that the instructor said on this course was that you can't just play the notes. Uh, Hendrix was all about feel, and he was all about feeling. And so nine times out of – you could play the notes, but you're not going to be what he was, and no one probably ever will be. But if you try to feel it, it makes it a lot better. If you try to let go of the constraints of a scale or a chord progression, you're going to be better off. You're going to sound more like – what he was getting at, but do your own thing. And so, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm consumed with trying to understand his mind in playing this instrument. And I went to bed one night and I, it was a very quick coming on dream. Uh, I kind of almost, and this was an absolutely a lucid type of thing, if if I'm understanding the way you describe it correctly. I woke up at a bar. I'm at the bar, and I'm drinking. And down at the end of the bar is a man. And uh, he's got a hat on, and he's drinking, and he's smoking cigarettes. And I look over, and it's him. It's Hendrix. And I said, uh <sighs> I said, uh, I kind of scooted down towards the end of the bar with my drink, and uh, and I said, uh, "You're Jimi Hendrix," and um, and he says, "Yeah, yeah," you know, and he, and he talks just like you've ever you've always heard him talk, you know. And uh, I said, "You're this is impossible because you're gone, you're you're dead," and I can't remember what his reply to that was, but but it was something about uh, nobody ever dies or. I'm only dead where you are or something like that. And and we started having this discussion about music and about life and about all of this really deep stuff. Not a word could I recite today as to what it was about, but we went on and on and on. And at a certain point, he says, come on, man, I got to show you something. And we walk outside. He puts his arm around me. We're walking down this street, and I noticed that there is no one in the streets whatsoever. And this is an area that I know. This is a bar I know, in fact. It's a blues bar that's down in Baltimore. And we go out into the street, and what's usually a pretty busy street is vacant. And the whole place looks like a ghost town, and it's eerily silent. And he says, hey, man, look up here and remember this. And I look up, and in the sky, uh, quite large is the earth. And so immediately I'm filled with this uneasiness that, where the fuck am I? Because clearly I'm not on the earth because the earth is right there in the sky. And about that time, um, there was like uh, a, like a, a very 
negative hand, negative looking hand, kind of an evil looking hand grasping around one side of the earth. And on the other side was a, a very angelic looking hand. Um, and I just saw this. And uh, I woke up after that. That's that's what I woke up with. And um, there's a book or something that I had seen that I wanted to pick up. I hadn't looked through it. But it was something about Jimmy and his artwork. Like he did a lot of drawings and paintings and stuff like that. And so I wanted to get it. So I got paid that Friday and went down and got it. And when I got it, I always open it up and I'm going through all these pictures and I'm thinking this would be neat on a guitar. I could paint this on something and blah, blah, blah. And I get towards the end of the book and here is this picture of an earth with a demonic hand and an angelic hand kind of around it. I was like, huh. (laughs) And uh, through the most ridiculous, stupid happenstance, I end up on the phone with his best friend. I mean, you want to talk about accident. I couldn't even give you all of the coincidences that had to happen for me to end up on the phone with this guy. But uh, I tell him about the dream. I tell him about what's happening. We ended up having a three and a half hour conversation on quantum physics and the paranormal and everything like that. Uh, and through that happenstance, I trip into another meeting, another person who uh, hung out with Jimmy like endlessly. And I tell her about this dream and I tell her what I thought. And she said, well, you know, he said the same. She said the same exact thing that the friend said, which was your focus and your your desire to know and to know his mind and to know how he thought past the persona of the patron saint of acid that everybody kind of wrongly paints him as that is what kind of draws someone in. So in effect, this, the, the, the best friend said to me, he's like, in effect, I believe you did talk to him. And, uh, and and that's why I asked you early on, you know, when it comes to dreams and stuff, how do you define dream? How do you define this? Because I could not differentiate that dream from actually being somewhere. That's how deep that dream was. So, I mean, when you're consumed with something like that, um, where you're truly trying to understand something, that's where I think that that mechanism happens, the, the, the between – uh, did I really talk to Hendrix or not? I have no fucking idea. It could have been a dream, but if it was, it was a very powerful dream that tied into all of these other weird-ass coincidences happening to where I meet people that he knew and hung out with and grew up with. And so well, it's, uh, true. it's know, just very, very fucking strange set of synchronistic things that happened all around that. Yeah, and as you're talking, I'm remembering, duh. You know, I had that in the early stages of this whatever energy development in me mm-hmm. had that uh, going to that dojo in hell you know right yeah uh, yeah several times you know being shown around different floors so i guess if that counts as astral projection i don't know i guess maybe i don't even quite know what astral projection is and i'm trying to figure it out here but whatever that is i mean i don't consider that to be a normal dream i can i think that that probably exists somewhere mm mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't I don't have any idea um, what the mechanism is. I've only got the most rudimentary general idea of what I think that that mechanism is. But I think that there is a different 
I, I, I have to say that what I think the mechanism is feels like a natural thing. It's like it is the way it is, and this is a natural thing. But there are others around, you know, whether they be the dead or aliens or whatever, that are governed by that natural thing. And when you interact with that natural thing, it sets in, in motion the gears, and the gears open the door, and, and in walks the alien or the ghost or whatever. Um, that's kind of how I see that working. Well, perhaps on that happy note, that's a, that's a good place to end it. Yeah. Because I think your dream tied everything up nicely in a, a little bow. No, really? Okay. <laughs> Music, Lovecraft. <laughs> Wish I could remember it better. But, yeah. 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 Well, it was a good show. I mean, I really I really did enjoy talking to him, and I do hope he comes back. Yeah, that Donald was- Tyson is a great guest because he he he's one of those guys who you just get the sense you didn't even begin to tap his depth of knowledge about things. Um, yeah. And you get that sense when you go to his website, DonaldTyson.com. Yes. Because there's a lot there about a lot of things. Well, I think when we do uh, – if we ever do that big special on the Ouija board, I think that's the man that needs to sit in with us for that. Okay. That would be great. Sounds good. That's a whole nother ball of wax there. <laughs> yes. You know? What made you think of that? I don't know. Just kind of popped in there. I guess but, we'll find out. Yeah. When all be- of the ethereal connections come together and something manifests in your life having to do with a Ouija board, we'll find out about that. Yes. Sounds good. Focus your intention, Jeremy. Call the others. <laughs> I'm on it. Um, so once again, our thanks to Donald Tyson. His book is The Dream World of H.P. Lovecraft, His Life, His Demons, His Universe. Go pick it up. It's it's fascinating stuff. Um, he's a fascinating guy. Yeah. And Jeff, you're a fascinating guy. I'd like to pick you up. <sighs> what? Really? We're leaving that in? Really? <laughs> yes, that's right. See? <laughs> Even that has come full circle. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Well, until next time, Paratopians, Jeremy, stay the fuck away from me. (laughs) Sweet dreams, everybody. Good night.